You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Students, good evening. My name is Michael Kelly. I'm glad to meet you guys. Uh, I, it's great to be back in the great state of Texas. I was born in Texas. Um, not, not terribly far from here. You know, you say to people, when you live in another state and you say, I was born in Texas, sometimes they ask you if you know someone that they also know from Texas. As if there is some kind of club that only has 14 people in it. And, oh, sure, I know Jack. Yeah. No. People don't realize it's, it's actually quite a big state. Um, so I... I uh, am from a small town up in the panhandle called Canyon, Texas, and uh, now I live in Nashville, Tennessee, so it's, it's great to be back in, in Texas where they know uh, how to make barbecue uh, and enchiladas and many, many other things. Um, our children have all been born in the south, like in the, the deep south, so We've got three kids. I have a son that's 12 years old whose name is Joshua, and uh, I have a little girl who is about to turn 10 years old. Her name is Andy, and then I have another son uh, named Christian who is seven years old. And we also have a dog. Uh, we're relatively new to the dog business. I didn't, you know, we, we've never had dogs before, but uh, this past summer, uh, I surprised the kids, uh, brought them home a, a dog. It was, it's a golden doodle dog. And uh, he, he's, he was a puppy, and his name is Sam, the golden doodle dog. His full name, for all the book nerds in the room, is Samwise Gamgee Kelly. Uh, we call him Sam. So Sam, the golden doodle dog, lives with us inside of our house in Nashville, Tennessee. And I, when Sam first came to live with us, boy, I, I did not think I would ever become accustomed to having a dog. I mean, maybe you're a dog person and, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. But for somebody who's not a dog person, when you introduce a puppy into your home, your whole life gets wrecked. I mean, it's terrible. So I picked, you know, I picked this dog up in the car from a, a dog breeder in Florence, Alabama, which is about three hours from Nashville. So then I've got the dog in the car as a puppy to the, drive to Nashville. But because I don't know anything about dogs, the only thing that I brought with me was like an empty t-shirt box. So I've got a t-shirt box on the seat in front of me, and I'm trying to drive with this hand and wrangle this animal with this hand and I bet he went to the bathroom 14 times in that t-shirt box on the way home. And that was just the beginning of the bathroom issues with Sam. That's one thing that you have to get used to. You got to take the dog out and then bring the dog in. And right when you get back in, you got to take the dog out and bring the dog in. You've got to get used to the fact that you can't, you can't leave doors open when you have a puppy in your home because they're going to get in there and do all kinds of things they're not supposed to do. You you got to get accustomed to the fact that the puppy's going to wake you up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning with this incessant howling, make you come pay attention to him. You have to get accustomed to that. But it's weird because now, nine months after having gotten this dog, we're, 
we're used to him. I mean, sometimes I forget he's, he's there. Like now, he will just kind of go behind the couch and, you know, flop down and go to sleep like a, like a furry rug. And then you just remember he's there about 10 o'clock and you take him and put him in his, his night-night kennel. And, and that's what it is. So you become accustomed to this. And we as humans have a remarkable capacity to become accustomed to things, to get used to stuff. I mean, there's probably stuff in your life right now that you're used to, that you never thought you would get used to. I mean, maybe you never thought that you would get used to living in a dorm with someone else. And maybe you never thought you would get used to only having 37 cents in your bank account at a given moment. And maybe you thought you would never get used to eating mustard for a meal because that's the only thing in the refrigerator. Maybe, maybe you never thought you would get used to that statistics class. Maybe there's all kinds of things. We have a remarkable capacity to get used to stuff. And that can serve us well, but it can also be a detriment to us. So, for example, it's Holy Week. Are you used to Easter? Are you accustomed to the story of the crucifixion of Jesus? Are you familiar enough with the cast of characters that it's, it's just another week on the road to get to the end of school? Are you used to, are you used to this? Are you accustomed to this? This is one of the reasons why it's important that we actually have a date on the calendar to celebrate a holiday like Easter. You know, in theory, we should be thinking about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus every single day. You could make an argument that we shouldn't need a date on the calendar to celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what we do. We celebrate it all the time. But isn't there a little bit of pride in us if we think that's true? Isn't it a recognition of the fact that we are forgetful Creatures to say, no, no, we need a date on the calendar. You know why we need a date? Because we get used to stuff. We need the Holy Spirit of God, if not all the time, at least this one time of year, to breathe this story in us anew. For us to remember. For us to look with fresh eyes on the crucifixion of Jesus. For us to understand with a fresh mind the sacrifice of Jesus, for us to celebrate with fresh joy the fact that he is risen and risen indeed. We need a date on the calendar for this because we are weak and forgetful. And so tonight, I hope for us that as we look at a few of the moments before the crucifixion of Jesus from God's word tonight, that this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us. Is that for all of us in this room who have gotten accustomed to this, that are used to the story, that we might see it with fresh eyes for a few minutes tonight. Now, if you've been around church for very long, the story is familiar to you, and the cast of characters is familiar to you too, right? So, for example, you know some of the characters, Peter, James, and John. You remember in the story, Peter, James, and John. These are the three disciples that were Jesus' 
closest friends out of all of his disciples. And these were the three disciples that when Jesus went into the garden to pray after he has the Last Supper, he invites Peter, James, and John to come along with him and to pray. But three times, even though Jesus is praying fervently for the strength to accept the will of God for his life and his death, he comes back to these three, Peter, James, and John, his closest friends, and three times he finds them sleeping. You remember this. You remember another character. You remember Pilate, the Roman governor, the politician, the one who in the back of his mind knew that Jesus was innocent of the charges that they were bringing against him, but at the same time didn't have the backbone to actually acquit him of the charges. He's the one that wanted to try and find a way to please the crowd. You remember Pilate as the character? And then there's another character, and this is the character that I want us to zero in on tonight, because I think in looking at this character, we're going to see the true scandalous nature of the gospel played out in one example. And this character is named Barabbas. Maybe you remember him too. If you don't, I'd love for us to read together from the book of Matthew. This is one of the accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 27 beginning in verse 11. Now to set the stage from this, Judas has betrayed Jesus. Jesus has gone into the garden to pray. He's been seized and he's been taken to stand before Pilate the governor. Now just by way of a history lesson here, you'll need to remember to understand the story, right, that the Jews did not rule themselves during this time period. They were part of the Roman Empire. So the Romans occupied the Jewish lands. Now, the way that the Roman Empire ruled the peoples that they conquered was that in large part, they allowed them to govern themselves. So they would say to the Jewish people, you guys can keep your customs, you can keep your holidays, you can, keep, you can even keep your God if you want to keep your God. The only thing is that you also have to pay homage to Caesar. You have to have your highest allegiance to Rome. And one of the ways that the empire kept the people in check was that there were certain things that they could not do in terms of their legislative power. One of the things that they could not do was sentence people to death. This is the reason why the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, actually bring Jesus before Pilate. Because they are all in for Jesus' death in this moment. I mean, it is crucifixion or bust for the Jewish leaders. And they want this to be nice and legal-like. So they need Pilate to sentence him to death. Because they don't technically have the power to do it. So that's where we are in the story. The Jewish leaders are jockeying for a death sentence, and Jesus is standing before Pilate. And this is what the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, you say so. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Now at the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it? You want me to release for you, 
Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked him, Well, what should I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all answered, Crucify him. And then he said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water. He washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Now, you've got to sympathize a little bit with Pilate in this passage, don't you? Because Pilate thought he had a way out of this whole Jesus business. I mean, as we read the account, can't you just almost see Pilate sweating it out? He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want this decision in front of him. He doesn't want this crowd of people out there. He just wants this whole Jesus thing to go away. And he thought he had a way out. Because it was customary during the festival, the Bible tells us, and the festival is the Jewish festival of Passover, it was customary for the governor, who was Pilate, to just set a prisoner free. And it didn't matter if the prisoner had been convicted or not. He could set a prisoner free. Free, So you can almost see the idea come to Pilate while he's up there, right? So he knows that he wants to be done with Jesus. He knows that Jesus is not really guilty. The Bible tells us that he understands that the Jewish leaders are envious of him, and that's why they've put him up here. It's not that Jesus has really done anything wrong. But see, Pilate is a politician, too. He didn't just want a way out. He wanted a way out that curried favor with this huge crowd that was gathered in front of him. And at the same time, he resented the fact that these Jewish leaders were so high on themselves that they thought that they could come here with their crowd with an innocent man and back him into a corner and force him to act. So Pilate wanted a solution that got rid of the situation, but it had to be a solution that lined up with the popular opinion of the crowd. And if he could have a solution that also put the Jewish leaders back in their rightful place and reminded them of who they were and who he was, man, that would be bonus on top of it. And he thinks he's got it. It's a very savvy political move by a very savvy politician. So he thinks to himself, I'll put it to a choice. I'll put a convicted criminal next to Jesus and surely the crowd will see reason. They're not going to demand the crucifixion of an innocent man, especially when they've got somebody who is clearly guilty 
here. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if Barabbas was handpicked or if he just happened to be the first prisoner on cell block D. But can't you sort of imagine the scene in the jail? So here's Barabbas, who's been in jail for a minute, long enough where he's dirty. Maybe he's got a little cough for being inside. The jail stinks. It's terrible. The conditions are inhumane. His clothes have started to tear. His beard is long. And there he sits in his cell day after day after day after day. When all of a sudden he hears way down the hallway the creak of the exterior doors open. And then he hears the footfalls of the Roman soldiers coming down the hallway. And maybe there's a thought that goes through his mind where he thinks to himself, okay, this is it. Because I'm a criminal and my crimes are punishable by death. This is it. And then when he hears the key go in the lock to his door, he thinks for sure. This is it. This is the day that I'm going to die. So the rusty hinges squeak as the door comes open and the guards roughly grab him. But he doesn't have any fight left in him because he knows he's already been declared guilty. And so they drag him out and put him out in the sunlight because he hasn't seen it for so long. is blinding to his eyes and he shields his eyes. But then as his eyes gradually adjust to the light that's there, he is shocked to see that he's standing actually in front of a crowd. And next to him is standing something, is standing someone else. So then Pilate steps up and he says words that Barabbas doesn't really understand how this can be happening. But Pilate gives the crowd a choice. Which one of these guys do you want? Do you want this guy named Jesus or do you want Barabbas? Which one of these people do you want? And this is when the whole thing goes sideways for Pilate. Because much to his surprise, when he offers this choice to the crowd, he hears a few voices. They're quiet at first, but but he hears a few voices call out, Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And those voices then multiply into a few more. Barabbas, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And then the voices are coming together, and they're, they're chanting now, Barabbas, Barabbas. And Pilate looks out, and This crowd has a bloodthirsty look in their eyes, and now they're pumping their fists in anger about Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And so Pilate, almost in a panic, says, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And then that same crowd with that same venom and animosity says, crucify Jesus. And this crowd, Pilate realizes, is quickly getting out of control. It once was a crowd, and now it's turning into a mob. He has no choice. His plan backfires. And so he releases Barabbas, and Jesus goes to the cross. This is a microcosm of the gospel. Because the gospel is the message that the guilty go free while the innocent are punished. It's what happened to Barabbas. Barabbas was clearly guilty, convicted of a crime, no doubt about whether he was innocent or not, and yet he goes free. He walks away from that platform, and he's free to go have dinner with his family. He's free to laugh. He's free to enjoy. He's free to go to work. 
Free to do whatever it is he wants to do despite his guilt. The guilty go free, but the innocent is punished. And the truth is that I am Barabbas in this story. And you are Barabbas in this story. The Bible tells us what we read that Barabbas was a rebel. And I'm a rebel, and you're a rebel too. I mean, this is what sin really is at its core. So we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that sin is just making a bad choice or that we we have an uh uh-oh moment or, you know, we almost did the right thing, but then we didn't quite do it or we we just had one bad action here and there. No, that's not what sin is. Sin is cosmic rebellion against the rightful and good king of the universe. It is rebellion. That's what sin is. It has been that way ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. We are sinning rebels. This is who we are. See, every time we sin, what we are implicitly saying with our actions is, God, you rule over the entire universe, and as creator and ruler over the universe, you can establish the appropriate boundaries and let me know your will for how I ought to live. But every time I choose to do something contrary to that, what I am implicitly saying to the God of the universe is, I will follow my own direction. I will be my king. You don't have any sway over me. I'm a rebel. And so are you. Just like Barabbas. But the Bible doesn't just tell us that Barabbas was a a rebel. The Bible tells us that Barabbas was a murderer. That evidently he was involved in some sort of rebellion that happened in Jerusalem. And as part of that, someone was killed. So Barabbas was a rebel, but Barabbas was also a murderer. And I'm a murderer. And so are you. Now at this point, you might push back and say, well, ho, ho, hey, ho, 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 hey, 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 hey. We're talking about murder here, Right? If you believe the words of the Lord Jesus in this same book, the book of Matthew, the one who gets to define terms because he is the Lord Jesus, the one who tells us that it is a mistake to think of murder as purely the physical act of violence, that if you have thought ill of someone in your heart, then you have murdered them in your heart. I've done that. Shoot, I've done that today. And so have you. Barabbas was a rebel and Barabbas was a murderer. And I'm a rebel and I'm a murderer and so are you. But Barabbas, though guilty, was released and an innocent was punished in his stead. And that's the scandal of the gospel. That even though there is no doubt about our guilt, that there is no one who can stand before God and say, but no, none of that. Standing before God, every mouth is closed before him. There is no objection left in us. We have been found guilty of cosmic rebellion. And as 
guilty rebels, the appropriate sentence for us is death. This is what the Lord has said. So there is no doubt about our guilt. But the scandal of the gospel is that the guilty go free while an innocent is punished. Now, it makes me think a little bit of a story when I was a kid in Canyon, Texas. And one spring day, my parents weren't home, and I had a, a buddy that came over to hang out. And this super good friend did the super awesome thing of bringing with him some fireworks to play with that afternoon, which was awesome. But we knew, you know, we lived inside the city limits, and it wasn't really appropriate to play with fireworks inside the city limits, especially in, like, April. And so instead of playing with them outside, boy, we had a big time for the next two hours just shooting off fireworks in the garage. So we did. Firework after firework. Boom, pow, pop. I mean, they're everywhere. Just smoke billowing out of the garage, you know. We're... Shooting off fireworks inside of there. It was a grand time for the next two hours. And then he went home, and my parents eventually came home. And then later that evening, my dad came to me. And he said, son, I just uh, had a conversation with Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson was our neighbor across the street. See, he said, had a conversation with Mr. Johnson. And he said there was some kind of ruckus in the neighborhood this afternoon. Sounded like gunfire or fireworks or something like that, like for two hours. He said he almost called the police. Do you know anything about that? And I said, no, sir. (laughs) Not a thing. And he said, okay. And I whistled my way out of that room thinking that I had gotten away, even though I knew I was guilty, I had gotten away without being punished. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is like that. Because it's not. In fact, if you want a better scenario, imagine this. Imagine still the fireworks and still that my dad confronted me, but that instead of just asking me about it, imagine that in that moment he came to me and he had a dump truck full of evidence. He had videotape of me in the garage. He had the leftover fireworks, the shrapnel that was there, and he presented them to me. He actually brought Mr. Johnson in instead of just telling me what he said. And he identified and said, that's the man right there. He's the one that did it. So I am guilty, dead to rights. No question about it. And then my dad brings my little brother into the room. And he punishes him instead of me. Now, that's scandalous. That's more like the gospel. It's not that there's no punishment. It's not that you get away scot-free. Oh, there's punishment in the gospel. It's just that it is applied to the innocent instead of the guilty. Now, it's at this point in the sermon where we could really, I think, just sort of pray and say amen, right? I mean, that is, like, that is the gospel. The gospel is that we are guilty. Jesus is innocent. We are set free, and he is punished in our place. I mean, we could end it right there, but, but there's, 
there's one detail in this story. There's one more detail that's important for us to examine. And the detail involves the crowd's reaction to Barabbas. See, I've read this story and I've always wondered how this crowd turned so quickly. Because if you remember back to Sunday school and you remember the whole story of Passion Week, you'll remember that when Jesus came into the city, there was a crowd there too. You remember it? And this crowd was laying down palm branches before him. And they were chanting again, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you got a crowd just days earlier that is heralding Jesus as the Messiah. And then you've got a crowd here who turns on a dime and says, crucify him, crucify him. So what happened to the crowd? And I think the answer comes again. In Barabbas. So let's talk just a couple more minutes about Barabbas. See, in the passage that we read, we learned that Barabbas was a well-known prisoner. So this wasn't just a common, ordinary prisoner. It was somebody that the crowd was familiar with. Now, when you start looking at the other accounts of this same story in the other Gospels, you find in Mark and Luke that Barabbas was arrested for insurrection, okay? So that means he was involved in leading some kind of political rebellion. And Luke tells us that this political rebellion, this insurrection, took place in Jerusalem. Mark is really explicit because it identifies Barabbas as one of the rebels in prison who had committed murder in this insurrection. Now, history tells us that during this time, there were these bands of Jewish outlaws that the peasants loved. In fact, they looked at them sort of like Robin Hood because the Jews didn't like being ruled by the Romans. They wanted to be free, and there were these bands of outlaws who would go around and just make trouble for the Romans. So Barabbas is one of of the members of one of these roaming bands of outlaws. So Here's what that adds up to. That this man Barabbas wasn't just a common criminal. That he was a participant and a violent one at that in some kind of political rebellion against Rome. And there's one more detail. In some versions of Matthew, and maybe yours says this, it gives you his full name. Did yours? Jesus Barabbas. Now, that shouldn't be shocking to us because in this time period, Jesus was a very common name. Very common. It would be the equivalent of being named like John in our society today. There would have been seven Jesuses in his class in Hebrew school, okay? So, but it does make the choice that Pilate gave the crowd a little bit more meaningful. So maybe the crowd heard something like this. Folks, i got two Jesuses here for you. Over here, I've got Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Over here, I've got Jesus Barabbas. So which Jesus do you want? Do you want this Jesus? This Jesus, the one that you've been trying to make king for three years, but he won't take the throne? 
You want this Jesus who tells you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? You want this Jesus who won't even defend himself on the charges that are being leveled against him? You want this Jesus who has spends his time making friends with people that are on the lowest rung of your social order? You want this Jesus whose followers are lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes? Is this the Jesus you want? Or do you want this Jesus? You want the man of action? You want the one that's not scared of the Romans? You want the ones who will take political power by force? You want this Jesus, the go-getter, the one who gets it done? Which Jesus do you want? See, the reason that those people lay down palm branches was not because they thought that Jesus was the Messiah who would save them from their sins. The reason those people laid palm branches down in front of him was because they had a dramatic misunderstanding of what the Messiah was there to do. They were still looking for some kind of political king, someone who would ride into Jerusalem on a horse, not a donkey, someone who would wield a sword, not heal the lame, someone who would destroy their oppressors, not heal their children. That's the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And this crowd had started looking at each other over the course of the past week, thinking to themselves, I don't know if I'm down for a Jesus that looks like this. This Jesus is much more to my liking. So Pilate puts the choice before them. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want Jesus of Nazareth? Or do you want Jesus Barabbas? And I wonder if the Lord asked the same thing to us tonight, how we would have to respond honestly. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want this Jesus over here? The one that's going to convict you? The one that's going to challenge you? The one that's going to force you out of your comfort zone? The one that's not going to agree with all of your political opinions? You want this Jesus who's going to call you to love your enemies instead of hate them? Or do you want this Jesus? Do you want this Jesus over here? The one who hates all the same people that you do. The one who just rubber stamps your plans for your career and your aspirations and just tells you good job and sends you out into the world. You want this Jesus who just agrees with all of your opinions and lines up perfectly with the way you think your life and the world ought to be run. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want this Jesus or do you want that one? Which one? See, friends, we're not only Barabbas in this story. We are the crowd that clamored for his release. Because many of us don't really want this Jesus. We want a Jesus that agrees with us. But can I give you some good news? Some good news? Here, just a few days before the resurrection of this Jesus. The good news is, this is not the last time that we see this crowd. See, there's going to come a a couple of weeks from now when another crowd in the same city where they misunderstood the identity of the Messiah and laid down palm branches in his feet, where they demanded with clenched fists that he be crucified, there'll be another crowd And that crowd is going to stand before another man. It's not going to be Jesus, but it is going to be one who denied Jesus three times. 
And that day, when Peter's standing in front of that crowd, he's going to tell them the truth. He's going to say on the day of Pentecost that this Jesus, the one that you crucified, let all Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And then this same crowd, the one that misunderstood his identity, and then the ones that demanded his crucifixion, are going to look at Peter and say, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter will reply, Repent and be baptized in the name of this Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Because even though this might not be the Jesus that you thought you wanted, this is the Jesus that you need. The good news tonight for us, because we are Barabbas, who is guilty, and because we are the crowd who so often settles for a different version of Jesus than the real one, the good news is that the gospel is for us. And so you have an opportunity tonight, friends, to embrace the voice of the Holy Spirit. And maybe the voice of the Holy Spirit to you is offering you that same question. Which Jesus do you want? Which one are you seeking after this holy week? Is it Jesus the Christ or Jesus that agrees with you? Which one? And if you find yourself looking at this Jesus saying, give me that one, release him to me. Then it's not too late to repent. Return to the gospel. And acknowledge that even though this Jesus is not the one you thought you wanted, he's the one that you need. Let me pray for us tonight. Lord, this... Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.